Good morning, and the conversation continues here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio as we ease on into WIP Sunday. And it's going to be hot and humid, but it's going to be, no matter where you go, a nice day, given the hot and humidity. And take 94 WIP with you, because it'll always be hot conversation here on 94 WIP. And we're going to get right to work here on WIP Sunday as I welcome Ivan Eland. Ivan is a senior fellow and director of the Center for Peace and Liberty at the Independent Institute. He spent 15 years working in Congress on national security issues, including stints as an investigator for the House Foreign Affairs Committee and principal defense analyst for the Congressional Budget Office. Good morning, Ivan Eland. Morning. Okay. Ivan. Let's get right to it. What do you think of how Donald Trump is handling the question of national defense and security? Well, there's sort of a bit of a contradiction in his policy. He has, well, first of all, he said that we we're going to have fewer wars and there was going to be, you know, fewer uh, troops on the ground. But he's done quite the opposite in many of these small wars that we're fighting. We're fighting seven wars now. Uh, in various countries, he's uh, ramping it up, uh, whether it's expanding drone warfare uh, in many places or putting more troops in Afghanistan. So that's the first contradiction. Uh, but then if we were going to do that, reduce the amount of troops and the wars we were fighting, and we were going to make our allies do more, which is another one of his campaign promises, then we should have been able to reduce the defense budget. But, of course, he is uh, proposing a defense budget increase uh, of about 10 percent. So uh, the, the whole policy is, seems to be contradictory. Well, but isn't increasing the defense budget because of his belief the Obama administration let the defense mechanism go to pieces? Well, if there's any uh, erosion in readiness, it's because of these long wars that we've been fighting, uh, not only in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, which we're redoubling on, both of them, uh, but, you know, places like Somalia, Yemen, uh, Pakistan, uh, Libya, et cetera, Syria. And so uh, what we need to do is kind of reduce that, and uh, we'd have plenty of money. But we there, we spend over, uh, you know, about – 600 billion on defense and then of course we have all the other uh security expenses of homeland security state department uh um aid uh the aid agency um but we've spent plenty on defense as a whole 600 billion uh but we have too many bases around the world and even at home that the military would like to get rid of and so there's a lot of savings that we could get here so if we're complaining about any readiness caused by these long wars, uh, Trump probably shouldn't pin it all on Obama because Obama did continue some of the wars that Bush started. But Bush started most of these wars after 9-11, and uh, has con they've continued. And that's what, if anything, uh, destroys your military readiness and also burns equipment that you have to buy new equipment uh, because you're fighting all these things. So. Uh, it does have a readiness cost, but I think we spend so much on defense, we spend what the next, uh, you know, eight or eight or ten countries uh, do, depending on what the figures that you use. 
So uh, we spend about what, half of what the world spends on defense is spent by one country, the United States. So it's not like we're, we don't have a lot of money going to this. And it's always staggering to me to see um, why we need to spend more money when what we need to do is probably reduce our commitments overseas our bases overseas, and our interventions overseas. And if we did that, uh, we wouldn't really need to spend more on defense. We could spend it on some of the readiness issues that we do have. It's always puzzled me, and this might be a slight digression, but I'm going to ask you because of your expertise. It's always puzzled me Puzzled me why we think we can win a war in Afghanistan that the Russians couldn't win because they were there first. Well, you're absolutely right, and it's not only the Russians, though. No outside conqueror has been able to subdue Afghanistan since Cyrus the Great of ancient Persia before, in the years before Christ. So it's it's been a long time, and we, the British failed three times, uh, and twice in the 1800s and once in the early 1900s. As you mentioned, the the Soviets failed in the 1980s. So our policy of going in there and uh, rehabbing the country, remodeling the country, if you will. Uh, is a foolish one. And one of the things that we're trying to do is we're trying to make the central government stronger. Well, in Afghanistan, they just don't have a history of that. It's a very decentralized country. They have many, um, uh, you know, different ethnic and tribal groups and uh, religious uh, sects. And therefore, you know, it's sort of like Iraq. It's a, it's a, uh, country that's sort of artificial because you have various ethnic groups and they don't all, and the Pashtun of which the ethnic group is the Taliban that we're fighting, that uh, goes across the border into Pakistan. Of course, that's one of the issues there. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's really, and the place is quite xenophobic because, of course, there have been a lot of foreigners trying to subdue the place over time, as I just mentioned, and they've all failed. So, uh, we thought that we could do it when nobody else did, and now, and what's even more ridiculous is we've been doing this for 16 years, our longest war by far, even longer than Vietnam, and uh, we it hasn't worked. We had 100,000 troops in there in 2010, and that didn't work. And the Soviets had 100,000 in there, and it didn't work. And now we're ramping up from 12,000 to 16,000, and we think that's going to do the job. It seems to be just, um, you know, keeping our finger in the dike so the Taliban doesn't uh, overrun the country or at least most of the country. Taliban has never really had all the country. But, uh, you know, it's just uh, ridiculous that governments and very intelligent people do some pretty stupid things, and I think that's what we're doing here. The generals have told Trump that, oh, well, we've got to put more troops in there because we can't lose this one or whatever. And um, unfortunately, he's doing that. Well, you allude to something. A lot of people are concerned about what's been called the militarization of the White House. Um, the chief of staff is an ex-general. There are generals in the various cabinet positions as well. Does this concern you? Uh, yes, it does. And I think uh, usually our defense secretary isn't a military person, and they have to get they, the Congress had to get a waiver to get Jim Mattis in there. But I think everyone was so concerned about Trump being president, uh, you know how erratic and everything he was, that they chose Mattis, saying, "Well, at least you know he's a sober-minded individual who is very conservative, but 
you know, he, he's at least some, a steady hand at the Defense Department. So they gave him the waiver. Uh, but he's got also got um, General McMaster, at, um, uh, National Security Advisor, and now uh, General Kelly as Chief of Staff. So he's got three generals up there. But, of course, the militarization of U.S. policy didn't start with Trump. It's, it's become – it's accelerated under Trump. But, of course – uh, the U.S. has had a military, military policy, a militarized foreign policy, probably since the end of World War II, where we think that we have, we have the best military on the planet by far, absolutely or relatively in world history, and therefore we see everything as a military problem. But when you go into places and try to do nation building, most of that it requires skills that the military is not good at, like you have to go build infrastructure, you have to... Uh, do political education. It's really difficult to uh, change political culture and just national culture in many countries, and it's kind of futile to try to think you're going to do it just with the military. And unfortunately, Obama, when he first came in, like Trump, he didn't have much experience in foreign policy, as did Bush before him, and they were kind of co-opted by the military. Uh, Obama, the first thing he should have done when he got into office was get out of Afghanistan, but he he surged Afghanistan because he felt that the military was a powerful constituency and they wanted him to do it. So the military is going to tell you, hey, we need more troops in any war they're in because they want to win. And I, I don't blame them for wanting to win, but uh, war is too important to be left to the generals is the cliche, and it's very true because I think you have to say, "Hey, wait a minute! This is taking a long time. We haven't done. We haven't done it. We're going to have to cut our losses and leave." I mean, we have a twenty trillion dollar national debt. We can't afford this anymore. We we spend in military spending, you know, as I say, about half of what the world spends, but our GDP is less than a quarter of the world's GDP. So. There's an overextension there, and we have a huge national debt, and our economy has been dragged by government excessive government spending. And so I think uh, the military and other things probably need to be – the expenses need to be reduced, and we need to national renewal. And, you know, Trump sort of promised that. I'm not sure his policies were, would have achieved that, but he certainly hasn't even put in his policies of national renewal because he's ramping up these conflicts overseas. I think we need to pull the tentacles in a bit uh, of a worldwide uh, machine and, uh, you know, get get some national renewal. That renews your power in the long term, and I think that's what we need to do. Certainly. Um, one of the strengths of this country has always been a civilian head of the military, the commander-in-chief. is not a general. He's a civilian elected to the presidency. It seems like we have a civilian elected to the presidency, commander-in-chief, but all he does is rubber stamp what the generals want. Yeah, well, that's true. And the problem with Trump, uh, and I think the problem with our previous two presidents, and it's a problem a lot, a lot because foreign policy usually doesn't win elections in the U.S. It's domestic issues. So you get people like Bush, Obama, Trump, who don't know much about foreign policy. A lot of them are governors or like Bush or, uh, you know, this is our first businessman who's never had any political experience at all. So I think the, the experience curve went down with Trump. I mean, at least Obama was a senator, Bush was a governor, et cetera. But when you have an inexperienced person uh, and, and then you put all your advisors as military, it's uh, – 
you know, you're going to get the, the military solution, and I think they need other advice. You know, certainly we need military people in the Na National Security Council, but not all military people. You need civilians in there, too, and I think uh, there needs to be other perspectives by just saying – and sometimes it's curious that the military – I think the military people are actually helping out in the Iran case because Trump seems to be really uh, anti-Iranian, this Iranian nuclear agreement. And I think some of the military people have said, hey, listen, Iran's complying, it's working, and, um, you know, maybe we should, you know, since we have another nuclear problem over in North Korea, maybe we don't want to fight two fronts, two wars on one, you know, two fr a two-front war on nuclear weapons, uh, new countries getting nuclear weapons. So, I think they have had a, a good effect in that case. And sometimes the generals are leery of getting in more quagmires. But once they're in a quagmire, they seem to say, well, you know, they don't want to lose the war. And I understand that because their job is to win wars. So it's a kind of a complex thing. But sometimes the military is against getting into wars, which is good. But like I say, we're already in them, and then you've got a problem. So I think we need a balance of policy advisors. We need civilians. Uh, we need military. Uh, we need a, a variety of people talking to the president, and I don't think we have that in this particular case. What do you think, because you've alluded to what's probably going to be our next war um, when you mentioned North Korea. What do you think is going to happen there? Well, you know, Trump is backing himself into a corner, unfortunately, with all this hot rhetoric. Of course, in the past, you know, he said one thing and done the other, and no one seems to hold him to it. So maybe he can do that in this case. But there are not very good military options because the North Koreans, Seoul is only 35 miles from the DMZ, the demilitarized zone, which divides North Korea and South Korea. And so that's the capital of, of, of uh, South Korea, and it has 25 million people in it. Well, you know, countries usually buy military equipment that fits their needs, and North Korea has all these artillery tubes, and it can start lobbing artillery shells into the Seoul area, killing tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people until we can get it stopped, and we could eventually stop it because we would win that war. But And, and now uh, you have to assume that North Korea can at least hit Japan and South Korea with a nuclear missile. So... Um, you know, the cat's sort of out of the bag. I think he's got nuclear weapons. He's going to get the missile to uh, as far to go as far as the United States. But the problem is we always make these people out to be um, crazy, and then we have to take them out, like Muammar Gaddafi in Libya or Saddam Hussein in Iraq. You know, we say, well, there are these people unstable, and I don't think he's unstable at all. He's doing exactly what a rational person would do. He's watched non-nuclear countries like Iraq, uh, Libya, Ukraine have problems with bigger powers because uh, they didn't have nuclear weapons or they gave up their nuclear weapons like nuclear program like Libya. So he is getting these nuclear weapons because he thinks the United States wants to take him out. And, you know, he's looked at the record of U.S. doing that and, uh, we have done that. So uh, I'm not sure he's all that irrational. He may be a nasty character, and he certainly is, but uh, we have to put ourselves in his shoes at least to think what he's thinking. So I think we're going to have to just deter him. We've had mutual deterrence for a long time. We haven't attacked him because of those artillery tubes and other ways he can um, he can smuggle a nuclear weapon into the south, et cetera, even if he doesn't have a missile for it. So 
you know, he's deterred us and we've deterred him because we, we would win a war with him uh, handily, uh, but it would take a while. And it would, a lot of South Koreans, Japan, Japanese and U.S. people who are there uh, in the military would be killed. So uh, sanctions are probably not going to work and China is probably not going to, uh, uh, you know, sanction him enough to, to take him out. And China's reason for doing that is they don't want a unified Korea under a South Korean um, regime uh, on their border. You know, remember in the Korean War, uh, they North Korea invaded South Korea, and then we got into the war, and we pushed them all the way back up to the Chinese border. And then uh, China got nervous and came across the border with hundreds of thousands of troops. And, of course, we got we had to retreat back to the middle of the country, which is now the DMZ, and that ended the war. But uh, So China is very nervous about uh, the U.S. and the South Koreans being up near its border. Um, and so uh, China is probably not going to want the North Korean regime to collapse. Uh, also, they'd get a lot of refugees. So, you know, really the only thing that we have is deterrence, and we deterred uh, the Soviet Union and Maoist China. Mao in the 1960s th kept threatening the U.S. to nuke the U.S. But, of course, these dictators are very rational, even when they seem crazy. Mao seemed crazy at the time, but they want to maintain power, and you can't maintain power if your country is incinerated. So we have a much larger nuclear arsenal. So what we need to do probably is just deter him like we did them with our much larger arsenal. He only has a few a few weapons compared to what we have, maybe most like, I don't know, 10 or 16, something like that. But, uh, I mean, we have thousands of weapons, and, uh, you know, he could he could maybe destroy a city or two, but that's if he could, if there, he had accurate weapons, and certainly that's terrible, but we can destroy his whole country very easily. So I think that would deter him from trying to do something like that. So... Uh, the main scenario I think that the U.S. is worried about in South Korea is that, and South Korea is particularly worried about it, is they're saying, well, if he has nuclear weapons and the United States has nuclear weapons, he could invade uh, South Korea and then he could threaten to a U.S. city if we came to assist him. And that, that is a viable option, uh, a viable threat. But I think the, the uh, solution is the one Trump, proposed during the campaign that South Korea and Japan need to do more for their own security, beef up their forces, uh, and, uh, you know, they're very rich countries, and we should not be really defending these countries anymore. We should slowly wean ourselves. They should slowly wean themselves from, from our um, umbrella, including our nuclear umbrella. And you're listening to WIP Sunday. More with Ivan Eland from the Center for Re Peace and Re Liberty in just a bit after these commercials. Stay with me, Ivan. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Ivan Eland, comes to us as director of the Center on Peace and Liberty at the Independence in the Independent Institute. Ivan, do you see a war with North Korea in the future? Well, I hope not. I hope the uh, generals will act actively tell them that that's a bad idea. And... Uh, you know, it, it, this is one area where the generals might help out because there's really not a good military option. He keeps threatening to fire in fury, which is an indirect way of saying that he's going to use nuclear weapons against North Korea, and I hope that he's not going to do that. And I think that uh, 
very frankly, I don't think there's as much of a crisis as as is um, the media portrays it. Certainly, Kim Jong Un, he's an erratic leader. He, he's not crazy, as I said. Him getting a nuclear uh, missile that will, uh, you know, has the range to hit the United States is not a good thing. But he still has to have accuracy, and he still has to have a a missile that can come back in the Earth's atmosphere without burning up a warhead. So, and I don't think he has that yet. So we have a little bit of time. I just don't think that that we're going to be able to negotiate um, this away because he feels he needs it for security, first of all, and second of all, for prestige, influence, etc. And so it's very difficult to get a country to negotiate, and it's very difficult to get a country uh, to do big things that you want them to do with economic sanctions. It just doesn't work. Sometimes economic sanctions can achieve smaller goals, but this is a goal that goes to the heart of what Kim Jong-un, rightly or wrongly, believes is his security. So I don't think negotiation is a pathway anymore. I think sanctions is not going to work. And so I think we're down to basically either the military option or deterrence. And I think the military option would be catastrophic. We could win the war, no doubt, but tens or hundreds of thousands of people in South Korea, Japan, and maybe even Guam uh, might be um, killed by this uh, war. And it's just not necessary. I think he's is deterrable as uh, Mao was uh, during the 1960s, as the Soviet Union was, who are, and China and the Soviet Union were much more formidable enemies, uh, Soviet Union with thousands of nuclear warheads. And they had some uh, erratic leaders, too, like Khrushchev during the Cuban Missile Crisis and that sort of thing. So the United States has effectively used deterrence, and other nuclear powers have used deterrence, like Britain and France, uh, for a long time. And so... And Pakistan and India are deterring each other right now with nuclear weapons. So uh, the end of the world is not near. And I think if we make it out to be, if we think that Kim is crazy, we're liable to do something crazy like use a military option. And I don't think he's proven himself to be crazy. I think he's been very rational in what he's doing. Now, you say, well, you know, he he sort of adopted the, the madman theory of Richard Nixon before even Trump started trying to do it. And that is, you want your opponents to think you're crazy, so that they're, you know, they'll they won't take uh, aggressive action against you because they don't know what you'll do. And so I think Kim Jong Un and his father and his grandfather have uh, have used that very effectively uh, in the past. Well, there are some people though who worry about Donald Trump's mental health. What do you think about that and how it's going to affect Well, I think this? that's I think that's a valid. Uh, uh, question mark. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's been he's so far on the North Korean uh, issue. He's been he's been not quite as been as uh, erratic as uh, and blustering as Kim Jong Un. But he certainly he certainly said, uh, you know, we're going to use fire and fury. He keeps making threats uh, against North Korea. And it's very strange because Obama was held to this red line, which if you really look back on it, Obama really didn't make a red line in Syria. He left himself an escape hatch. Uh, Congress wouldn't authorize military action in Syria. And uh, uh, Obama neg- used negotiation to get the 
Syrians to give up their chemical weapons. Now, they didn't give them all up, and that was a problem. I mean, it, we had a problem in enforcement, I guess, but it wasn't necessarily a serious mistake. And Obama gets blamed for uh, setting up a red line and then uh, not doing anything when uh, uh, Syria crossed it. But, of course, that's sort of not true. But in the case of Trump, he threatened to use uh, fire and fury, which is nuclear weapons, against North Korea if they even threatened the United States again. Well, then, then you know, very shortly after that, uh, Kim Jong-un did threaten the United States, and, of course, the United States did nothing. So I would think that that would be more of a red line uh, than Obama had. And he certainly... Uh, Trump keeps making these threatening rhetoric and bluster, and then he doesn't follow up. So, you know, who knows what's going to happen? But I don't think that type of erratic leader is uh, is uh, one you really want. But that's the one the American people elected, and so uh, that's what we have to to deal with. How do you see it all ending, Ivan? How do you see uh, the North Korean issue? Well, the the issue of world peace in general, we're never going to have it, are we? No, but we haven't had a nuclear war since, uh, well, we haven't had nuclear weapons employed since uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, so that taught the world something. I think the world can learn from, you know, I think the world is not going to necessarily incinerate, but if they do, it'll be because of some, you know, uh, accident or some tough talk that has to be done. If you'll recall in the Cuban Missile Crisis, well, actually, you can't recall it because the history hasn't been written correctly. Uh, John F. Kennedy really threatened nuclear war over a non-strategic uh, issue. Those missiles in Cuba were not any more of a threat than if they had been in the Soviet Union. And that Kennedy himself said privately, if I hadn't made that uh Macho's speech, I wouldn't have had to do anything at all. So he, even he realized he shouldn't have done it. But, you know, leaders can pit, uh, uh, pin themselves into corners, and I hope that Trump hasn't done that in this case, this fire and fury type of rhetoric. But uh, So as far as nuclear weapons, uh, we've been pretty successful in not having another nuclear incident. Now, as far as conventional war, <clears throat> no, I don't think we're ever going to have world peace because – People fight over the most ridiculous things sometimes, and uh, national honor gets involved, and political leaders who are usually much more pragmatic than their publics, uh, they have to react. Even in authoritarian countries like China and Russia, the leader has to be seen as strong. So public pressure, even in those countries uh, where you have a dictatorship, works, and sometimes uh, people, you know, people get their uh, hackles up and force the leaders to do things. So I think we're still going to have wars, uh, maybe not nuclear wars, but certainly the state of affairs since World War II will probably continue to hold where we have conventional wars but not nuclear wars. And, uh, you know, I guess that's better than uh, not having nuclear wars. Of course, it's not. The refugees and the civilians that are much more than that. So many of these words get thrown out of their homes. I guess It's tragic, but I'm afraid that's sort of human nature. And I'd like to say thank you to Ivan Eland for giving us some insight into this country, its defense posture, where it comes from, how we're going to get there or not, as the case may be. Thank you, Ivan Eland. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure. And it's WIP Sunday. 
here on 94 WIP. More after these messages at WIP time, 735. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon, and we're into the home stretch. Sometimes we have to laugh to keep from crying, and that's part of what my next guest is about. I'm pleased to welcome here Al Ginny, Al's new book, The Importance of Being Funny, Why We Need More Jokes in Our Lives. Good morning, Al Ginny. Good morning. How are you? I'm fine. Do you agree with me? Sometimes we need to laugh to keep from crying. Well, I need. I think we need. We have to laugh, as Jerry Lewis, who just passed uh, recently, suggested. Laughter is a safety valve. We can't always handle the problems of reality. Reason doesn't always apply, but sometimes we need a pause to defang the reality in front of us and perhaps get another perspective. How do you see that working out, though? Well, and not as well as I would like it to, to be, even though we're in the midst of, I think, of a, a comedy um, golden age, thanks in great deal to you know social media and the availability of computers and television and the omnipresence of um, tape shows. Uh, and because, of, I think, of the brilliance of Saturday Night Live 40 years ago, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I think comedy still is um, not just entertainment. It is entertainment for a lot of people, but still can be used as... Not a Band-Aid and, and, and not a cure, something in between, a pause, because I don't think we can handle every problem that phrases us. Look at the headlines this last week, Harvey in Houston, uh, Florida battered, uh, an H-bomb and a missile set off by North Korea. How do we handle that? How do we digest it? How do we program it? I'm not sure we could always easily answer things, but sometimes we simply have to laugh at it to take a pause, to step away, and perhaps get another perspective. All right. But it seems to me there's different kinds of humor. Yeah. There's family life humor mm. that's, you know, fodder for the situation comedies. Right. And then there's political humor. Absolutely. And satire may be as old as comedy itself. Satire from the Greek to bite one's lip, to be angry, to, to belittle and, and, and make fun of everything in front of you. As Robin Williams classically said, um, satire is about the, uh, the communication of the fact that the Pope farts too. That is to make fun of everything. Um, but in making fun of it, um, you're railing against it and critiquing it. I mean, I think that all goes back to this notion of court gestures, um, and they've been, they're in every society. They're not just the, the little cute uh, clown that we see in Victorian, or excuse me, in uh, Henry VIII films, et cetera, et cetera. They're part of every civilization, the Chinese, the Cheyenne, the, uh, you know, Central Europe, et cetera, et cetera, Japan. This permission for this particular individual to speak truth to power, to make fun of a situation. They had permission. I want to say he because they were primarily he. There are very few women. Um, they had permission to make fun only in their role, but that role was a safety valve for society. And kings and emperors uh, coveted these, uh, these clowns, these gestures, if you will, and they very often became very important to the court and to politics. Why do you think that is? Well, because I do think we need to vent. I, I think that, um, you know, Mark Twain said it best, never enter a funeral uh, telling a joke, but never leave a funeral without sharing a joke about the deceased. That is, it's a solemn event, but there's also something to celebrate. And I think humor does both. Now, it's all about timing, 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 right? I mean, um, you, the first... You don't tell a joke about a terrible cataclysm. No one's telling Harvey jokes yet, I hope. No one's telling hurricane jokes yet, I hope. Um, and no one's telling 911 jokes because that tragedy was too large to make fun of. But I think we make fun of, look, Mel Brooks, 
made fun of World War II. Perhaps the most insidious, evil person that existed in the 20th century, Adolf Hitler, he made a fortune off that. Time, yeah, a tragedy, it, 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 I think, is a stimulus very often for comedy. Time is important in making fun of tragedy, but it doesn't always work that way. For example, I just came back from Africa, and I had the great pleasure of going to Rwanda to climb for the great apes, the silverback apes. No one makes fun of the Rwandan genocide. It's too terrible of an event. Um, but the people have learned to laugh, and, uh, and the people have learned to laugh about other things as a way to help heal. All right, though, but why do you think it's more men than women? Um, comics? Yeah. Well, uh, Jerry Lewis, by the way, to refer to him twice in one conversation, that doesn't happen very often, um, you know, was reviled you know, throughout most of his life. He, he maintained that the women aren't that funny. Women aren't naturally funny. And the women who get away, who, who we think are funny, are doing men's shtick. Um, women have just not been part of the comic tradition. They are now. Look at Netflix. I mean, uh, there's there 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 is super abundance of women, incredibly talented women, and, and one of the women that I think propelled the thesis of the book was Joan Rivers, who said, "If you could laugh at it, you could live with it." Um, but comedy, you know, like acting. Think about this: acting until the 18th or 19th century was primarily limited to men. All of Shakespeare's females were men in drag. Um, so part of it was cultural, and part of it was, you know, habit, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think right now uh, some of these brilliant, brilliant women out there are changing the face of comedy because they're making fun of their special little, you know, little uh, worlds or worlds, not just the man making fun of his world, sports, et cetera, et cetera, beyond politics. Yeah. Certainly there's a lot to go with in terms of political humor in our society. Yeah. What do you think of that? Are we are we being fair? Are we being disrespectful? Oh well, here's without being political, without any condemnation of the president or, or vilification of the president. The reality is that Donald Trump um, is a surprise to a lot of us, including a surprise to himself. And Donald Trump, his persona, his brand, his demeanor, his use of language, his his. Um, his, his body language, I think, is ripe for satire, no matter what your politics are. And clearly, he is making four or five men at night very, very rich on late-night TV. Um, and, you know, as John Stewart said when he, re he announced his retirement, and then Trump announced he was running for office, and Stewart pounds his head on television and says, what am I doing here? You know, this is, this is comedy, this is comedy uh, fertilizer. Um, but Lewis Black recently said, joking, of course. He says, it's not fun being a comic anymore. Uh, I don't have to do anything. I just have to read the papers and read the headlines and make fun of it. I think that uh, Mr. Trump, um, again, putting the particular politics and the exactness of his politics aside, is simply a person open for it. And by the way, the other person in my life that was that was uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. My goodness, there was Van Meter who did the, the album on that. You're probably much too young to remember that. Oh, Mr. I remember. Trump. Okay. And, you know, everybody made fun of Jackie and made fun of Jack and so on and so forth uh, because he was so good-looking and handsome and, you know, and he had a certain that accent, et cetera, et cetera. Well, again, politics aside, Mr. Trump and Saturday Night Live is kind of brilliant stuff. But is it disrespectful? I mean, the man is the president, for better or for worse. Oh, I think um, I think you're not uh, 
I, I think that that's probably true. We want to honor the office. But a quick glance at the history of the presidency will show you that presidents have been reviled, have been, uh, oh, my God, uh, things that have said, things that they said about Lincoln, cartoons that they put in the paper about Lincoln in the, in the North as an ape in, in, in a suit, in a Brooks Brothers suit, um, are, are just beyond comprehension. Things that were said about Thomas Jefferson, by John Adams, by the way, things that were said about John Adams by Hamilton, by the way, are, are scandalous, outrageous, horrifying. I think that's the meter of politics, like it or not. Go to England, a land of civility. Listen to their parliamentary debates. It's, it's outrageous. Uh, and they're, they're so willing to um, cast, uh, cast an aspersion, tell a joke, uh, attack that person. I think that's part of politics. I think clever humor is different than vicious humor, and I think that that's a kind of commonsensical dis distinction or a distinction that you have to make in place. And I'll give you an example. Um, it's not just Saturday Night Live now with Baldwin doing uh, Trump. Since the beginning of Saturday Night Live, you may remember this, the first presidential impersonator was not Dan Aykroyd, but um, Chevy Chase and, and Jerry Ford falling right. down. And there's been a male character throughout the 40-plus years of Saturday Night Live that has made fun of the president. They've never had that character start the show every week, as Baldwin apparently does now. But it's always been part of the tradition of satire. And I think satire is also... This venting mechanism, you know, this is how we get rid of our anger, get rid of our frustration. What led you to write the book, Al? Um, it's a sweet story. I'm glad you asked it because I always like to honor him. My uncle, I'm um, well into my 70s, uh, but ever since I was a little boy until the week before my uncle Joe died, I had this wonderful Uncle Joe in my life. When he saw me, he would put his arms around me, and just before the embrace, just before the kiss on the cheek, he'd whisper in my ear, Alfredo, did you hear the one about? And he told me a joke. And very rarely throughout his life did he repeat himself. And by the way, as my life progressed, his jokes got naughtier, and so he kept up with the times. Uh, and But one day when I was a teenager, I kind of pulled back, and I said, Uncle Joe, what are you doing this for? What This is stupid. What is this tradition about? Then he looked at me, and he said it in Italian, so it loses something in English. He said, Alfredo, if I didn't love you, why would I want to make you laugh? Why would I want to give you the gift of a joke? And that's how I've looked at humor my whole life. It's a gift you give to others. Um, I think humor does at least two things. I think it holds off the horror of life very often, right? It's a defense against the universe, as Mel Brooks said. But humor is also a gift, uh, builds relationships. When I tell you a joke, Mr. Solomon, I want you to like me. I want to see what, you're, what, you're, what you like. I want to see if we could be friends. I'm offering you an olive branch. I'm trying to defang and, you know, and, and breach um, this wall between us. So I think humor is a very important part of the human experience. Well, first of all, my name's Peter. And Peter, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's Peter. all right. That's all right, Al. Um, that's true. We need to laugh to keep from feeling the pain of certain things. I mean, earlier we made statements about how Mel Brooks made us laugh about Hitler. Yeah. And certainly made us laugh about the Inquisition, another example. Yes, right that's there. a wonderful thing, the, the wonderful routine he does, yes. What's in the book? What do, you, what do you tell us? I mean, you give us the philosophical importance of humor, but what, what else is in there? I'm sorry, I, I didn't quite what hear that. What else is in the book besides the philosophical reasons for humor? 
Well, I think uh, I try to analyze, you know, what humor is about and what is, what is a joke. I mean, it's a simple thing. You know, what what makes something funny? How how does it work? But I also talk about. I think for me. Um, I, I try to make fun of uh, what I do in a classroom. I've been teaching the reluctant and the unwilling for over four decades in required courses, and I've learned that uh, in order to get through, I have to entertain a little bit. So I think of myself as an entertainment specialist. So I try to, you know, tell jokes in class that that are integral to the, you know, they integrate into the class. But I will say on occasion, when I see on a Friday morning when people are thinking about this weekend and, or still hungover from, from the beginning of the weekend on Thursday night or just totally uninterested in the material because I'm lecturing about the 13th century vowel shift, that was a joke, by the way, um, uh, I'll, I'll stop and say, did you hear the one about? It simply is an attempt to get their attention again because I think that, um, if I can entertain them a little bit by my demeanor, um, I can I can educate them a, a little bit or, or, or train them. Now, like any stand-up comic, the joke has to be appropriate. Joke has to be good, and I'm not just up there to joke. So there's that delicate balance uh, in, in all that. And the other thing I talked about in the book, which I'm very proud of. By the way, would you like an example of that? Please. All right. Years and years ago. Now I teach uh, different kinds of courses, but years and years ago when I was simply in the philosophy department, I was teaching metaphysics. Imagine metaphysics at 8.30 in the morning, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And we were studying Heidegger, Zeit and Zeit, time and being, being and time. Okay, what is the meaning of time? And it's a very difficult thing, you know, whether it's in English or German and so on and so forth. So here's my classical joke that, that was on the syllabus to explain the whole purpose of the class. Woman goes to the doctor. She's not feeling well. The doctor gives her a thorough examination. The doctor says, well, I'm sorry to tell you, you've got this absolutely rare disease, and there's absolutely no cure for it. And even worse news, I don't think you have six months left. Tops. The woman is horrified. She says, my God, is there no cure? She says, no, there's no cure at all. She says, there's nothing I could do. She says, well, there is one thing you could do. She says, what is it? She says, you could run out this afternoon and marry a tax accountant. She looks at me and says, my goodness, will that cure my disease? She says, oh, no, you're still going to die, but the next six months will seem like forever. <laughs> I you love know, it. And that was about, the, you know, time is temporal. Time is transitional. Time is dependent upon others. Time is relative. And it got through. It worked. So you can't joke for 50 minutes a day. You, you know, you can't joke every, you know, it's not like an opening act at a club. You can't joke, start off, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, did you hear the one about? But I think, we may think about this, uh, Peter, as well. Um, uh, the teachers we remember were, were the, 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 first of all, we remember the terrible ones, the boring ones. We're still mad at for it. We're wasting our time, okay? Um, then you remember the brilliant ones, who you may not have understood them, but you were in awe of their brilliance. But the ones that got through were human beings, you know, that they had a little humor and, and they try to communicate that they were interested in you or they noticed the fact that you got a haircut, that they were human in class. I'm not suggesting that, you know, teachers are not human, but I am suggesting that not every teacher has, you know, has, has that gift. It's like every other profession, policemen who are not good at it, doctors who are not good at it. Not every teacher is good at it, but the good ones came across uh, as full human beings, including a sense of humor. And I'd like to say thank you to Al Ginny, his new book, The Importance of Being Funny, Why We Need More Jokes in Our Lives. Thank you, Al. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, and it's been another edition of WIP Sunday. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Nothing left to say, but see you soon.